Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Richard Fontaine, the CEO of the Center for a New American Security. In just a few minutes, we're going to dive into today's main event. That's uh, a look at um, what a sustainable U.S. defense strategy for the Middle East uh, might look like. And uh, I'm looking forward to participating in that alongside a, a, a panel of, uh, of CNES experts. Um, but before we do that, we're going to take the opportunity of this gathering to mark a very special, very significant moment in CNES's year, the presentation of the first Lieutenant Andrew J. Basevich Jr. Award. We normally present this award at our in-person annual conference each June, and we've done so uh, each year, all the way back to the very founding of CNS. We established the award in honor of U.S. Army First Lieutenant Andrew Basevich Jr., who was killed in action in Iraq in 2007. And through his life and through his service to country, his values represented the best of America, and they exemplified the kind of courage, integrity, and commitment to a better world to which we all aspire. Uh, each year, we take a moment to honor the memory of Lieutenant Basevich and to recognize an extraordinary individual at CNS for their leadership potential, their commitment to public service, and their contributions to U.S. national security. In just a moment, I'll introduce this year's award winner, but I first wanted uh, just to welcome Dr. Andrew Basevich Sr., who has been so kind as to join us today. Dr. Basevich, thank you as always for allowing us to name this award in your son's honor and for joining us each year to recognize our award recipients. It's a hugely important part of what we do at CNES and who we are at CNES. Well, you know, my family and I are very grateful for this. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Uh, let me now introduce the Basevich Award winner for 2020. Kaylee Thomas is the research associate for the Middle East Security Program at CNES, and her research centers on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with a particular focus on Iran, Syria, and the economic tools that are used in U.S. strategy. She's also co-founded and directed the CNES Make Room Initiative, uh, which aims to empower communities that are underrepresented in national security, to educate the next generation of leaders, and to provide a platform to share their expert perspectives. She's published an array of major reports at the center. She's contributed to the public dialogue with dozens of interviews in U.S. and international media. And Kaylee's commitment to public service and to bold leadership, both inside and outside of CNES, is truly remarkable. So Kaylee is a very deserving recipient, and we are incredibly proud to name her the 2020 Basevich Awardee. Uh, please join me in virtually uh, congratulating uh, Kaylee. And uh, Kaylee, you can imagine a, 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 a round of applause from uh, an extended audience. And uh, now we'll just hear a few words from Kaylee. Uh, and Kaylee, the floor is yours. Thank you, Richard, and thank you, Dr. Basevich, for joining today and again for lending your son's name to this award. When I first joined CNAS a little over three years ago, the Basevich fellow at the time took me out to welcome coffee and he gave me a piece of advice. He said, 
joining CNAS this early on in your career is like sitting at the cool kids table on your first day of school as a new student. And I don't think I fully internalized that advice at the time, um, you know, first and foremost, because I was having difficulty imagining what the equivalent of a national security jock was. But I quickly learned that CNS is indeed the proverbial cool kids table, not only because of the cutting edge research um, that all of the staff here does, not only because of the bipartisanship that everyone embodies, and not just the emphasis on empowering junior staff, which has allowed me to write and research and travel, as Richard mentioned, and to also launch the Make Room Initiative. What is special about CNAS is indeed the people. My colleagues who have all supported me over the past three years have taught me that to do this work well and to do it successfully, you must do it even when you don't have all of the answers when you're tackling hard questions. You have to do it while lifting up your peers and all of those who are surrounding you. And you must do it always with kindness, the kind of kindness that the first Vasevich Fellow Sean Brimley will always be remembered for. So thank you to all of my colleagues, to my mentors, friends, and family who have supported me over the past three years. Above all else, I will endeavor to exemplify the values that Lieutenant Basevich demonstrated himself, courage, leadership, and a commitment to public service. I am deeply humbled and honored to receive this award that bears his name. So thank you. That's fantastic, Kaylee. Congratulations from all of us at CNES and the and the broader family here. Uh, we're extraordinarily um, pleased by uh, to name you this year's award winner. Very deserved, and uh, so deserved that Kaylee is not sort of off the clock in terms of uh, her responsibilities on this particular uh, webcast that we're doing here. So we are now going to, uh, with a final congratulations, move into the Middle East discussion portion of the event, of which Kaylee is the moderator. So uh, she is not done uh, quite yet. And uh, Kaylee, now let me turn it back over to you. And I guess if you can uh, switch over your brain just a little bit, then we will uh, dive into um, the problem uh, and opportunities of American sustainability in the Middle East. Yes, so thank you all for joining today for what I am sure is going to be a great event. Um, accompanying me, we're going to have a panel discussion with obviously our esteemed CEO, Richard Fontaine, also Alon Goldenberg, Director of Middle East Security Program, and Becca Wasser, who's a fellow in our defense program. The focus of our conversation today will be on actually imagining a sustainable U.S. defense strategy for the Middle East. Um, the inspiration for this event is, of course, the work of all of us, but in particular, a commentary put out, I think this past July, though it seems more recent, um, by myself and Alon Goldenberg, that kind of detailed some key principles around which such a strategy should be developed. And so to, to kick us off, I'm going to briefly give an overview of what the premise of that commentary was to serve as a basis of discussion. And then we'll launch into what I'm sure will be a lively debate with all of our panelists. And at the end, allow some time for audience questions. So please continue to populate that Q&A function at the bottom of your screen throughout the duration of the event. And we will try to pack in as many questions as possible. So to begin, the premise and desire of US policymakers and presidents to get out of the Middle East is definitely not a new one. And for the past 20 years, from Bush to Obama to Trump, we have tried to shift our focus away from this region and to others, but without much success. And 
part of this failure is largely dependent upon the absence of a sustainable Middle East strategy. And instead, we have kind of swung the pendulum from one side to the other, becoming deeply invested in the region to fully withdrawing, which only has in turn allowed us and encouraged us to overcompensate when crises arise and once again become overinvested in the region. And so what's really needed is a sustainable strategy, one that focuses on the long term and is based on four key principles that Alan and I have outlined in our recent commentary. The first of which is to define U.S. interests more narrowly. This has been, I think, an increasing conversation among Middle East analysts and U.S. policymakers writ large. But U.S. objectives in the region should really be prioritized around two central objectives. First and foremost, to manage and contain rather than solve the challenges posed by and fueled by the region's civil wars, including terrorism and mass migration. And second, to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons, most notably Iran, which would also drive instability, not just within the region, but potentially for the global proliferation, non-proliferation regime um, writ large. The second important principle is to pursue pragmatic diplomacy based on de-escalation instead of focusing on regime change and military solutions. The lessons we have learned from the Iraq, our experience in Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and more is not simply that ousting regimes uh, is not as straightforward as we sometimes like to think, but that the United States needs to set more realistic objectives and negotiate pragmatic solutions to actually address the threats uh, that civil wars and other issues in the region present. Um, and to do this requires diplomacy in addition and uh, beyond simple intervention. The third principle is to rethink security and economic assess assistance to invest in people rather than authoritarian regimes. Often the ticket, high ticket items are conventional arms, but this does not aid our partners in the region to address low end threats such as the regular warfare often undertaken in these civil wars and uh, counterterrorism threats as well. Instead, focusing on broadening this to humanitarian aid and other economic assistance will not solve all of the region's problems, but will put a greater emphasis on long-term growth uh, and unrooting some of the um, bases of inequality that drives instability within the region. Lastly, and I think central to this discussion, so I'll um, not give too much of it away, but is to reduce US conventional military presence in the region and instead pursue a limited, efficient, cost-effective, by, with, and through approach to counter regular warfare in the region. Our conventional footprint in the Middle East is quite large, and this has often driven the call to withdraw US forces from the region. But we must think about this more holistically and about how and why and when the U.S. intervenes in the region to begin with. When considering whether or not to intervene in the region, we offer that the United States must look at this question along a set of criteria. First is do the actors gaining power on the ground directly threaten U.S. interests and the interests of U.S. partners? Second, is there a viable local partner on the ground whom the United States can support and who can provide long-term security for U.S. forces and others. Three, does it require a uniquely American role because the mission cannot be accomplished by other countries aligned United States? Our assessment is that keeping this criteria in mind will set a high bar for intervention in the region. And in the rarer cases when intervention is necessary, 
that there be additional restrictions and thought to how the United States embarks upon such an effort. But I think we're gonna dig into that a little bit more within our panel. And so without further ado, I'll turn to them for their expert opinions on these principles and others they should believe should be part of a sustainable US strategy in the Middle East. So we'll start with Richard. You have already written about a non-intervention delusion, not for the Middle East, but US policy writ large. And one thing that you warned against was that a cramped view of American interests could in fact come with cost of its own. So I'm interested to hear in this discussion about assessing US interests in the Middle East, how do you think that we should craft them and prioritize them moving forward? Congratulations on um, the paper and uh, that you and Alan have done. and making some hard calls um, that are certainly uh, up for discussion about how the United States should actually prioritize. And, you know, I, I get back to uh, what Alan actually has described as America's yo-yo diet in the Middle East in terms of its military presence. We always seem to be either doing too much or too little. We, um, you know, everybody sort of seems to agree that um, we don't want about 160,000 troops in a long-term nation-building um, exercise again. Uh, but when we tried to withdraw from Iraq uh, in 2011 and saw the unfolding of ISIS there and the, the kind of ramifications, well, that didn't look too attractive either. And so we continue to kind of go up and down and everything. And that has something to do with how we do the things, how we pursue the interests that we define. But of course, it also has to do with what our appetites are, how we actually define those interests in the first place. And um, I, I think the counterterrorism operations in the Middle East um, are gonna continue to be um, an important feature of America's reason to be there. And, um, and, 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 and there will be other ones as well. So, uh, you know, if we sort of rewind the clock and look uh, at Syria and the effects that had not only in the region, not just the humanitarian side, but on terrorists, activity on the destabilization of European politics and so forth. Um, the, the, the imperative, or at least the argument to engage uh, militarily in some way, shape or form, I think is going to continue to obtain in the Middle East into the indefinite future. So rather than, I think, imagine that we can wholly get out of that line of work and um, and, and either let someone else take care of it or, or sort of let things burn in some instances. Um, the bar needs to be high for intervention, but when we decide to go in, it's my view that we should go in uh, to particular places, not just armed with an exit strategy, but with a staying strategy. Um, thinking about what is the case gonna look like if we actually are on the ground as we are in Iraq, as we are in Syria, as we weren't in, in Libya for, with catastrophic uh, implications. Um, and, and what would need to obtain in order for us to move on? And th that's the kind of uh, questions that I, I see too infrequently analyzed before we engage in a military intervention. Um, if it doesn't look short, contained and discreet, what is the alternative we're willing to pay that price and how is that connected to the overall interest? So um, that's kind of how I approach it. On the question of how then, Becca, I'll turn to you. I know that you've done thinking, uh, especially on the footprint uh, in the Middle East, which is often kind of raised as one of the things that needs to shrink. So whatever the why, um, that that must at least stay consistent. So I'll turn to you to kind of expand a little bit about how we would actually do that. 
Well, changing the U.S. footprint in the, middle, in the Middle East isn't going to be easy. And I think that's sort of the first thing that we need to throw out there. Um, you know, Richard referred to sort of the yo-yo diet. I'm going to refer to this instead as sort of the U.S. force presence hokey pokey in the Middle East, where, you know, you what we've seen for decades is you put your troops on in, you take your troops back out you put your troops on in, and then you sort of move them all about the Middle East. And that's created this unsustainable footprint for us. And we've seen this time and time again. And this means that US force posture hasn't been well thought out. Instead, what it's been is almost entirely reactive to uh, different crises and contingencies that have emerged. So genuinely right-sizing US forces in the Middle East would require a reassessment of U.S. interests, as you and Alon have noted in your paper for the next NDS strategy series. Um, and it's really taking those interests, mapping them to locations, military missions, and then determining what U.S. forces and capabilities are needed to carry those out. So what I'm advocating for is sort of true posture planning instead of playing whack-a-mole to constant crises or to responding to partner requests for U.S. boots on the ground. And so on the implementation side, I think, you know, there are maybe two areas where the U.S. can start to start doing some of the hard work to make this happen. The first big item to address is the extensive U.S. basing architecture in the Middle East. You know, one of the biggest fallacies is that the U.S. military operates out of tents in the region. Instead, the U.S. military operates out of bases and they are concrete. They require a pretty decent amount of presence as well as associated support. More so, people don't realize that there are a lot of these bases. So, you know, we usually talk about the big ones, Al-Udaid in Qatar, uh, Camp Arfjan in Kuwait, but we don't think about some of these smaller bases that exist. So we can look to do base consolidation instead, where you could take a place like, for example, the U.S. Army's Arm Depot in Qatar, Camp Asalia, and think about ways in which you can move some of that equipment to the U.S. Army's Camp Arifjan. That frees up forces and also reduces some of the costs on the United States. Um, and it also makes sure that we aren't having a redundant footprint. Um, the second area that we could maybe start thinking about what it is that we can do to right-size U.S. force presence is to take a long, hard look at some of the U.S. security cooperation missions that we undertake and determining whether some of these are truly viable at building stronger military partners. You know, we often continue these missions and associated activities like training and exercises, even when we know that they're not working. So for example, the United States has been trying for decades to create an integrated um, missile defense network in the Gulf. Uh, we have equipped partners with this in mind. We have you know, had longstanding training missions in Middle Eastern countries uh, in order to make this happen, as well as mul multiple multilateral and bilateral exercises. But you know, the thing is like, it all requires manpower, it requires money, and it requires presence. And no matter what, it's not working, and it's probably not going to work because of long-standing threat perceptions as well as concerns over sovereignty. So it's almost time to give up the ghost and start saying, you know, maybe these security cooperation efforts 
shouldn't be the backbone of, you know, a sustained U.S. military presence in the Middle East. And then I'll just end with one little word of caution, which is that true posture changes, you know, ones that are really structural in nature, they take time. They outlast administrations. And while the United States has ample areas in which it can try and change its footprint in the Middle East, um, change just isn't going to be immediate. And it's also not going to be as dramatic as I think people believe that it will be, because ultimately it's about right-sizing, not about retrenchment. Alon, turning to you now, as both Richard and Becca have mentioned, and as we allude in our paper, a reduction of reliance on military solutions means that the United States must turn toward other tools. So I was hoping that you could expand upon kind of that reimagined, balanced way. Sure. Thanks, Kaylee. And first of all, congratulations on the Base Search Award, which I've already told you like 10 times. But again, congratulations. I'm super excited about that and super excited for you. Um, so look, um, what we wrote in the paper, and this engages more, I think Becca's right, there's a whole component of this that's about our long-term posture. Then there's the question Richard was talking about, which is the interventions. And those two are obviously linked together, but it's almost like two separate questions. Like what, do we, what does our force posture look like and what do our sort of um, you know, different missions that we choose to um, engage in? And what I would say is like, if you pull back to what do we really care about in the Middle East, Kaylee, as you talked about? I mean, the biggest thing is you have these civil wars and all kinds of nasty things come out of them that cause all kinds of problems for us and all of our partners, right? And why are those civil wars happening? They're happening for two reasons. One is you have these governments that aren't capable of meeting the needs of their people. So that kind of gets things stirring. That's what causes the dissatisfaction, that causes protests, that causes sort of the starts of these conflicts. But then the real issue is that you have state-on-state -state competition that comes in on top of it. So you have Saudis and Iranians and Emiratis and Qataris and Turks, and they're all worried about their own interests, and they also all see opportunities in these small fights that are starting. So they say, why don't we throw some money and some weaponry into that fight, and that will give us an advantage. And you take these small wars and turn them into big, long, ugly wars. And there's a long history of sort of academic literature in this space. Uh, that says, you know, small civil wars become big civil wars when external powers start to intervene. Um, and so if you think about that, now you think about the American strategy. And I'd argue for the last 10 years, we've been, we've been just making that situation worse. We've been fighting those proxy wars because there's two ways to intervene. One is to go all in, um, which we have the power to do, but have decided is way too expensive and not worth it. Um, the other is to try to negotiate and just end these conflicts. Um, and a third is to do just enough to make everything worse by, be, by basically becoming a party to the conflict, but not doing enough to actually end it. And in Syria, as a guy who spent years advocating for arming the Syrian opposition, um, I was wrong about that. Like, in, in retrospect, all we did was turn a bad, make a, a bad conflict worse, um, as an example. And so instead, if I were to go back and we argue, like, what should we have done in a place like Syria? From the very beginning, our posture shouldn't have been like Assad must go. It should have been, we want to end this conflict however we can end it. Um, you know, that should have been the starting point. And then, you know, use pragmatic diplomacy accordingly. I mean, that is how you end these types of conflicts. You have to sometimes negotiate with really bad actors, like we did, for example, in the Balkans with Slobodan Milosevic. Um, Use of force has a role in that, a small role, but a role, but it can't really be the basis. The beginning has to be 
you know, about trying to end these conflicts if our interest really is about the bad things that come out of them. Um, and the other is when we spend, you know, billions of dollars subsidizing, you know, take the example of Egypt, you know, $1.3 billion a year, essentially in money for tanks, for them to exercise in the desert for a war against Israel that's not going to happen, um, seems to me like a waste. And it's worse than just a waste. It's actually cementing the sort of leadership that's currently in place in Egypt. It's basically a subsidy program for an authoritarian, relatively ineffective government. You could say, well, it's about the peace treaty with Israel, but not really anymore. I think Israel and Egypt have demonstrated they have an interest in maintaining that themselves. So part of it is, like, let's change our assistance and our posture sort of programs. Let's change what we do with the money we put into the region and use it to actually improve the situation in the region. Um, and part of it is focusing much more aggressively on diplomacy to end conflicts. For example, like one of the things we, we put, we briefly talked about in our paper, but also Kaylee in the other paper you and I uh, worked a lot on, which is the Reengaging Iran paper. We have a pretty deep section on what regional diplomatic negotiations that involve, you know, the Gulf states and, Isra and Iran and to some extent Israel and the U.S. and other regional players could look like. Um, and that's a very complicated stretch and process, um, but one that I think we need to start thinking more about because in other regions of the world, uh, you have these cooperative security arrangements in architecture uh, and you have an American policy in places like Europe and Asia where we don't lean first with the military. We don't think first about the military. We think about our other tools and the military is a complement. It's only in the Middle East where we always start with the military and then bring in these other pieces. So it really requires a, a change of mentality. Ailey, can I um, say a couple words about Alon's um, discussion right there, just to add a couple thoughts. So one, I think Alon was right when he um, supported the Syrian rebels, um, not right now when he's decided he was wrong before. So, and, and, and um, I think there's a different lesson actually um, in the experience in Syria, and it's related to the experience in Libya, which is, um, that the, the middle option often doesn't work very well at all. It's actually often the worst. So in Syria, rather than have an overt um, rebel arming program and a safe zone and things like that, or staying out entirely, we went for the middle option and it resulted in not toppling Assad. Um, and it resulted, I mean, it did actually work very productively against ISIS, which was almost a separate uh, effort after a while. Um, but, uh, but it didn't, it didn't, and it didn't give us the leverage that we thought we needed for the diplomacy. In Libya, we could have stayed out, we could have toppled the government and put boots on the ground occupied, that didn't look like a good idea. So the United States toppled, helped to topple the government and then sort of abandoned the field and the place descended into, into chaos. Um, the middle, the middle option often is is worse than either staying out or uh, doing something big or doing something middle but tailored, as opposed to middle aimed at all of the problems that a particular country is facing and all of the interests that we have bound up in that. So that's the first point. The second is that I think we should also acknowledge that diplomacy is a great idea, um, but it requires leverage. And often in the Middle East, the leverage comes from military presence, if not the use of force, at least from presence. I and mean, we saw this in Syria, where the United States, uh, particularly toward the end of the Obama administration, had all kinds of ideas for how to solve the situation. And it wasn't a lack of diplomatic attention by John Kerry and others. 
it was that we had no leverage and the Russians had leverage and the Iranians had leverage and Assad had leverage because they had boots on the ground uh, or, you know, domestically in, in, uh, in 2011, when the United States fully withdrew from Iraq, the ability to shape the politics in that country went kaput pretty quickly. And Iran, both because of presence in Iraq and geographic proximity and its other ties, helped to turn that government into a Shia chauvinist government that alienated the Sunnis to such an extent that ISIS started to look like a better alternative. So yes, for diplomacy, but it can't be diplomacy totally divorced from military presence and sometimes military action, or it will be fruitless, I think. Well, Becca, turn to you to pull you into this conversation, uh, especially with a focus on kind of the risks of this middle ground approach. Um, kind of the middle tailored uh, approach that Richard mentioned, which I think is kind of more of the focus on how we are by with the strategy in Syria and Iraq was effective against ISIS and that kind of narrow, um, or at least tactically operationally successful against ISIS in that narrow context. Um, but could you talk more about whether or not that could be a model moving forward uh, with other threats or crises that arise? Yeah, so I'm a little bit tentative to go all in with this by, with, and through strategy. I think that, you know, as you noted, there was a great deal of success with it um, in Iraq and Syria, but, you know, there tends to almost be this idea of forgetting all that went into making it a success, which also means that folks don't really realize exactly how much it required from the U.S. military. We think of by, with, and through as being this prime opportunity for uh, the United States to have fewer boots on the ground. But ultimately, what that means is that we run whoever our boots on the ground are absolutely roughshod. So when you have these specialized communities like, you know, special operations forces or joint terminal air traffic controllers, um, you know, we're degrading their readiness, which means that uh, we are you know, in some ways, the United States is incurring risk because when we have forces that are less ready, that opens us up to risk not only in the Middle East, but also to other theaters. But in terms of the buy with and through strategy itself, I think there's something to be said about future applications of it. And it worked when we were doing buy with and through against a non-state actor that was after some initial and continued airstrikes, actually was fairly, its capabilities were fairly degraded. Uh, we were able to have the time and space to build up the partner militaries that we were working with, the Iraqis, the Kurds, the Syrian Democratic Forces. We're probably not going to have that kind of time and that sort of luxury of training forces uh, if we are dealing with a near peer competitor or if we are even uh, perhaps fighting a regional adversary. Um, the other thing that we need to think about is, you know, if by, with, and through requires a, a really viable partner force from the outset, what does that actually mean? Because we have some partner forces in the region who we think are pretty capable and you know, can take responsibility for their own security and that of their immediate neighborhood. So here, you know, Israel comes to mind, as does uh, the United Arab Emirates to a slightly lesser extent. Um, so if those are viable partners, what 
what do we do with all of the other ones? And what if they're not involved in this uh, conflict itself? Also, you know, what risks are we willing to incur? A more capable military partner is probably going to want to advocate for its own interests and own priorities much stronger than perhaps in the Iraq and Syria case. Um, and so, you know, what are we willing to incur? Because if you look at, for example, what the UAE and Saudi Arabia have done in terms of the Yemen war, um, you know, they've been able to sustain a military intervention, but at great human cost. Are those the sorts of things that we want to be party to? So these are the types of things that we need to think through and we haven't really done a good job because we almost think that the model, the exact model that we used in Iraq and Syria is immediately exportable. And I just don't think that that's truly going to be the case. Oh, I'll turn to you for your thoughts. So a couple of things I want to respond. One, I, I agree with Richard on the idea that the, the middle ground is, is in many ways the worst in these interventions. I just come down maybe on the other side of, of what that means for our future, partially because I just feel like if you pull back to where we are politically and where, where not just politically, but where American interests are in terms of moving further away from the Middle East and towards Asia, I'm just not sure our, our interests merit the kind of level of intervention you need in most of these cases um, to get there when some of these other tools can, can work as well. So that's like part of it. I do understand the point about um, military investment gives you leverage. Um, this is true, um, but I also feel like we haven't really used that. It's supposed to also give you leverage with your partners. Uh, and in the Middle East, we haven't really had any tough conversations with our partners for the most part, you know, like we, we just sort of underwrite an approach that's right now it's let's confront Iran no matter what, right? Um, and so we're the ones paying more of the cost for that than say the Saudis, but the Saudis are very happy to see us fight Iran. Um, you know, actually it's gotten to the point where it's so, where in the aftermath of some of the escalation that happened in 2019 in particular, you know, the killing of Soleimani, but even before that, the, the Iranian attacks on Saudi oil infrastructure, um, the Gulf states wanted to start talking to, you know, Iran more and have signaled that they're open to more negotiations. And the signaling from the United States has been, no, we shouldn't do that, um, which to me is crazy. I mean, our interest is absolutely in de-escalating these conflicts. Like that should be our interest in this area is finding ways to de-escalate these conflicts. So I think you're right that there are some cases where, you know, more military, like where you need a certain level of military leverage um, or you just take more humble, you know, um, approaches. Like in Syria, for example, like John Kerry was doing a lot of negotiating, but his opening position dictated by the US government since 2012 was Assad must go, right? And it's still our position today. Our position today is, we're going to use sanctions on a guy who's killed 500,000 people and we expect it to force him to, to step down. I mean, that's just the total mismatch of, you know, means and ends. Um, he hasn't given up despite this incredibly ugly war that's just absolutely ravaged his country. He's not going to give up because of American sanctions. So I think that it's not just a question of having leverage. I think we actually have a lot of leverage in, in some of these cases to achieve limited objectives. What we don't have, is leverage to achieve these very big objectives that we sometimes set out for ourselves as the United States. And we do it for no good reason because we haven't actually done a proper accounting of our interests. Um, and if we took, had more modest interests, 
and based our objectives on that, we might find we actually have the tools to accomplish those more modest objectives. Um, and then just on, on by, with, and through, um, Becca, I very much agree. Like, I think that by, with, and through really needs to be, we need to be clear-eyed about this. It worked, you know, I think it works against non-state actors in certain scenarios where you have, and Kaylee laid out what the criteria we talk about in our paper are. Um, you know, it's got to be a modest investment, a place where only we can make the difference. We do need to be investing, I think, in, there are certain forces in the Middle East that are worth, worth investing in. For example, the Iraqi CTS, right? Small counterterrorism force, elite force that actually was critical in, in fighting ISIS. The Lebanese have the Magawir, which are also effective at doing this. The Emiratis have their presidential guard. Like, there are some forces that are aligned with us that are capable of doing some of these things. We should take advantage of that, but not assume that, for example, like just, again, bulking up the Saudi military and saying, you go fight Iran. I mean, that's just not really going to work and is not something that we should really be investing in. So I do, actually, this was definitely one of my critiques of the, of the last NDS. There was definitely, there was this section where it's like, we're going to focus on Asia, the great power competition, not the Middle East. And for the Middle East, we're going to go through our partners. Like, that's not enough. You got to actually think about which partners, what you're doing, and what is unrealistic to do in that way. And if you can't go through your partners, then the question is, do you want to invest more? Or do you want to, again, pull back on your objectives, which oftentimes is the right solution. Um, and just to add one, one final thing on this, um, whatever it is we do, I'm very much a believer. And I love to hear, like, Richard, you've written a bunch about this, you know, oversight and accountability from Congress, whatever that looks like to try and limit some of these, to not create these perpetual conflicts where there's very little clarity and transparency. I actually think, you know, the American public will support something like 2,000 troops in Syria or a couple thousand troops in Iraq in perpetuity if the answer is like that keeps the situation under control and we don't end up with like a rekindled ISIS or attacks in Paris or, you know, New York or wherever. Like, but we should just have that conversation and Congress should be playing its role in oversight in that and the military should be transparent about that. And I think it's a case that can easily be made to the American public. I'm just not sure we're making it right now. Instead, it's sort of this silly, you know, back and forth between like end endless wars and let's go to zero and like, let's just go all in and we got to fight terrorism everywhere. Like, which to me doesn't, isn't really constructive. I'm going to put uh, Richard and Becca on the spot a little bit here um, to say so we've thus far in discussion, I think, uh, highlighted a lot of the inherent tensions in figuring out a sustainable strategy, something that can last long term and offered some evaluations of the trade offs. But Becca and Richard, Alon and I outlined some kind of affirmative principles around which a strategy should be organized. So I'm interested to hear if you disagree or if you want to offer some principles of your own that you think are important to keep in mind moving forward. And I did very much put them on the spot, so the audience knows. <laughs> I'm happy to, to, to defer to Becca, or if you're collecting your thoughts, I'll give it a quick stab. Oh, no, Richard, this is all you. <laughs> um, well, I mean, some of your principles were... Um, Israel can defend itself, doesn't need as much help as it did previously. Um, Terrorism is important, but I, I can't quite, uh, didn't quite discern whether you think it's as important as, I don't know, it seems or as it once was. 
Uh, oil is no longer a galvanizing reason to remain present in the Middle East and try to avoid security events there that could have a disproportionate effect on the price of oil because given fracking, able to you know come back. And, and I think there's different, I, well, at least my view would be there, I, I would agree at different levels and disagree at different levels, depending on what the, which one of those and the other ones we're talking about. So um, I think terrorism is a major reason um, to continue to um, keep presence in the Middle East, both to stop uh, terrorist activity from unfolding pursuant to politics where we can be influential in trying to produce that outcome and to prevent the return of ISIS Jr. or, or whatever, as we've seen now several incarnations of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and, and other terrorist groups, and all of the kinds of things that follow. And here, um, there's, uh, there's a trade-off in, you know, any, any, any bullet you're going to use on the ground uh, could be used somewhere else in the world, theoretically, or, you know, that bullet could somehow be repurposed to deter, you know, I guess the Chinese for going into the South China Sea, although they're already there, um, or the Russians. But, um, but there's a trade-off in a different way if you don't do those kinds of things, because, um, you know, to this day, uh, Americans prioritize um, their own personal safety and their sense of security above a lot of other issues, including you know, the Senkakus and, and the Baltics and, and, and the protection of other things we think are important. And, you know, if we too disproportionately withdraw from the Middle East and don't fall, don't worry about terrorism there, leave it to others, so as to worry about great power competition or whatever other worry worthy uh, interest you think we have in another place in the world, and God forbid there's a massive casualty attack in the United States is traced back to an area that we have gotten out of. I think you're going to see a political momentum to go right back in there and probably in a, at a level that is disproportionate and, um, and over what it would have been if we were just sort of on a maintenance kind of thing. That then in turn has implications for your China and Russia strategies because you get back to probably not as distorted a priority system as you had after 9-11, but certainly something that has political resonance and policymaker attention and things like that. So that's on that one. The, 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 the interesting one to me is, is, um, is on the oil because, you know, it's, it was a, a, a cardinal, uh, it was a, it was an article of faith to which I subscribe that one of the reasons why the United States needed presence in the Middle East, even if we didn't never uh, imported another barrel of Middle East oil was because we care about the price of oil. The U S economy is, is certainly, very sensitive to the price of oil when it goes up pursuant to a supply shock that harms Americans. And therefore we have an interest in making sure that doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, the foreign policy uh, crowd that would kind of believe that was like in this Peloton going around the velodrome. And, and I was always in the, in the, in the Peloton, but now I kind of wonder because of the Iranian attack on the Saudi oil fields in a stroke in a breathtaking attack, they took, you know, 50% of Saudi production offline. It, this is the textbook nightmare scenario that has been one of the reasons we've been trying to protect the Middle East all the way going back to the Carter Doctrine. Um, and yet, it, nothing really happened. I mean, you know, yeah, there was a spike for a day or something like that, but it was kind of priced in and the world moved on. And it certainly wasn't the kind of um, cataclysmic economic event that would require um, such forward presence and action to make sure nothing like that ever happens again to really sort of heighten the acute uh, sensitivity to those kinds of things. 
And um, so anyway, I, I, I haven't uh, settled on, in my mind, kind of what the enduring importance of, ro of oil uh, is in the it's kind of the pantheon of American interest in the Middle East. But it, it, it seems to me that it is different, at least in quantity, uh, than it was before. So on this point about oil, the protection of oil and, um, you know, sort of U.S. military presence in the region, you know, yes, maybe it wasn't such a cataclysmic event in terms of shocks in the oil market, but the United States responded, I think, in a fairly outsized manner. So while yes, it didn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden we were going to war with Iran, we've reopened a base in Saudi Arabia that we had not had access to since the early 2000s, a base that had fallen in complete and total disrepair. And we needed to pour tons of money into in order to fix the runways to be able to fly out of them. That's in addition to taking taking um, you know, some of the air and missile defense assets that we had purposely taken out of the Middle East, sent to places in Europe and Asia to better you know, compete with our great power competitors and brought them back to Saudi Arabia to protect Saudi assets rather than US assets, which in turn left US forces unprotected in places like Iraq. So when you sort of look at it in this like grander scheme, there was, um, in some ways, you can still think of oil as being that driving interest and driving principle that will force us to act in ways that, you know, sometimes isn't necessarily the best as we found uh, later in Iraq. Um, and so here we kind of get into this self-licking ice cream cone issue about this tying of interests to military presence and sort of what it is that our forces do in the region. And this is one of the reasons why I think, Kaylee, you know, you're in Elan's number one sort of undergirding principle in your report, which is you need to better assess what your interests are and almost reprioritize and rank them is so essential and so important. I think I just disagree with you guys a little bit in terms of implementation or perhaps maybe I want I've always wanted you guys to go a bit further in terms of implementation and thinking what changing some of these interests would do and how it is that we would actually be able to implement those changes which is one of the reasons why so much of what I've been saying today has focused on some of these like brass tacks ways of actually making the changes yeah a lot let me hop in on a couple of things um one one of the interesting things on oil that I think we need to think about is sort of in the context of a great power competition in China. I mean, it's really China that's the big consumer of you know, Middle Eastern oil at this point. So you can make two cases. You can make the case, well, um, why should we be subsidizing you know, the freedom of movement of, of oil in these open sea lanes? And the Chinese should be investing more in the Middle East and they should defend their own oil, right? That's one argument. The other argument is, hey, as long as we, we are the ones who keep control of this, we have significant leverage over them. Um, leverage for what and in what context, you know, are we going into a big great power war with China where we want to cut off all their oil supplies in the Middle East? I hope not. I hope that's not where U.S. policy is going. I'm swaying a little bit outside of my, uh, my area. But that's one thing to think about, you know, as the energy questions quickly starts to like roll into this evolving role of great powers. And so I think that's something for us to think through. Um, I do, on the point of terrorism, Richard, I very much, I think our paper actually like 
in my mind, it's still the most important for precisely the reason you described, not because objectively, there's always the argument objectively, well, you know, more people die falling in bathtubs and from terrorism. And you also see a lot more people take showers in this world. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's a great statistic, but the point being the disproportionate political reaction in this country is inevitable. So I think what we try to do in our paper and in our work is generally make the case for like, what's a cheaper, more efficient way of managing that problem and avoiding it as opposed to sort of the, you know, the solution therefore to countering terrorism is like taking over countries and overthrowing governments. It's not right. I mean, counter ISIS campaign being a good example. Yeah. I think that ended up being quite effective, you know, and it wasn't cheap. If you like pull back and think about all the other elements behind American troops that we put into that fight, and also, if you think about the senior leader time it took, it was hugely, I mean, probably more, you know, these principal committee meetings and deputy committee meetings on that issue than any other one near the end of the Obama administration. Which, and that's a very important, I think, way of measuring sort of cost and, and the energy. Um, but still, um, pretty cheap compared to some of the alternatives. Um, and so more like of a strategy like that one, especially if you get it earlier, before you had, you know, if we had sort of a sustained long-term approach, ISIS would have never taken over Mosul. ISIS would have not held as much territory as it did. It would have been easier to manage as it was popping up and sort of contain earlier on is probably, I would argue. Um, and then Becca just, I totally agree on implementation. Like this paper that we wrote was very much a a framing paper, but, um, and we've done some real thinking on implementation, I think especially on the diplomatic side, uh, but I acknowledge less so on sort of the long-term posture side and um, the assistance side, and I would welcome very much the uh, opportunity to work with you guys on that over the next week. So. Um. We've alluded to or uh, domestic or the constraints of realities of domestic politics several times. And this is a theme that is popping up in questions from our audience. And on that note, I will encourage people to continue to populate that question box. Um, this is open to all or any of you to speak about, is there a way to kind of better calibrate, you know, a sustainable strategy with domestic policy concerns? Are there certain things we need to be changing on the way in which kind of the balance is structured on the domestic side to kind of address those or our basically proclivity for pendulum swings from too all in to not enough um, and kind of really what can be done about all of that. Um, I'll give this a shot. And um, I actually think that uh, a lot of the political leadership that points to the sustainability or lack thereof of American military presence in the Middle East misreads the politics. And I say that as a non-politician about politicians. So take that for what it's worth. However, you know, there is this narrative of Americans are tired of American engagement in the Middle East and they just want to get out. And that is true. I mean, you can ask people, do you want to stay in the Middle East or would you like to withdraw from the Middle East? And you'll get, you know, or, or any military intervention that you can pick and they, and they want to withdraw. But that's but resonance, political resonance is different than um, people actually voting or trying to enact policy on the back of that. So I mean, Donald Trump at a rally will get resonance 
for saying our allies are terrible and they don't pay their fair share. And if they don't pay up, we're going to get out of NATO. People applaud and all that. But no one's voting on that issue. And show me the demonstrations in the streets today that say, you know, we got to get out of Iraq. We got to get out of Syria, you know, even Afghanistan. Um, that on its own is not a reason to stay in any of these places, but it does imply a certain freedom of policy um, that is often assumed away because of this idea that the American people just won't stand for it anymore. They're tired. They want to get out. Few people, it seems to me, are actually voting on that. And there's very little that suggests in the polling that that's the determining factor, certainly when people are voting for, for president. And of course, you know, the Congress has not successfully you know, constrained any of this stuff, even during the white hot debate over war in Iraq more than a decade ago, uh, you know, withdrawal from Iraq never got more than by 55 votes on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And well, until they take the filibuster away, you needed 60 and uh, you need 67 to override a presidential veto. So um, so the point is that I actually think the politic, the domestic politics are much more permissive um, for uh, an administration, a military to make um, choices about American presence and, act, and action in the Middle East. Um, again, it may not be a, a good reason to, to do something or not do something, but I do think that um, if we assume that there's this political constraint on all those things that someone at some point is going to inevitably have to bow to, that's just not true. Can I hop in, Kaylee, and just make uh, one point on this also? Um, in terms of the domestic politics, um, I also think we need to see how things play out with COVID-19, because I also feel like we're kind of in a political moment where you might have a bit of a shift in the way the American public views foreign policy. Uh, I'd argue that, and I've written this um, over the last few months, you know, if you go back to 9-11, really since then, you know, the most resonant foreign policy issue politically in the United States has been, you know, the U.S. role in the Middle East, terrorism, you know, news from the Middle East would sort of get this disproportionate level of attention in our politics and in our news. Um, I mean, I think we were even there like early January of this year um, with the killing of Qasem Soleimani and everything that came after that. Um, but COVID-19 is kind of changing that. And this presidential campaign is kind of changing that. Uh, the Middle East really isn't on the radar of this presidential campaign, but China is in a much more significant way. And for a while, you've had sort of in, you know, strategic calls in Washington, the corridors in Washington, it's been the smart thing to say that, like, we should focus on China, not the Middle East. Like, that's the real long-term challenge. But that never really reflected sort of at least sort of the simple American political reality of, of viewing the world and what the threats were. Um, and I haven't seen too much polling lately, but I think those numbers are changing. Um, and there is, I think, a greater American focus on Asia and less so in the Middle East during this campaign season. And that will matter, I think, for, I actually think it might create more political space to do all kinds of things in the Middle East because there'll be less political pressure to respond immediately. Um, but, you know, it might just make, you know, our policy towards Asia, like, not as effective or at least more politically driven as a result. So, you know, positives in one part of the world, the negatives in other. Um, looking to a couple more audience questions that we have trickling in. Some people are kind of acknowledging that lately there have been some changing realities on the ground that may point to different, you know, 
roles, balances of power among partners of the United States in the region. So um, the potential for a deal on the F-35 with the UAE, this kind of increase of normalization uh, of ties between Israel and Arab countries, the rise of Turkey. And I'm just curious to the degree that you think for any of you, um, but Becca and Alan, I think you might have opinions on this, the degree to which these kind of changing realities should affect or drive how we form US policy and posture. So I'm a bit of a pessimist here. Um, so I know that everyone is heralding, uh, you know, the recent agreements, uh, you know, between Israel and the UAE, Israel and Bahrain, these normalization agreements as being, you know, the most major thing that has happened out of uh, this current administration. I happen to think, yes, let's not, you know, underplay the importance. This is what's going to be in textbooks. This is what's going to be part of, you know, the memory of the Trump administration. But ultimately, what this has really just done has taken pre-existing ties that already existed and put them out into the public. It's sort of like the worst kept secret in the Middle East that there are these relations between and among these countries. Um, so to a certain extent, I understand why it's so important and why it seems as though, you know, the tides are turning in the Middle East and this is going to change things. I just don't see it making all that much of a difference. What I do see continually with this, with the, um, the Emirati push for the F-35, with the rise of Turkey and other actors, is suddenly, instead of just crying that the US is pivoting to Asia and withdrawing from the Middle East, countries are actually trying to do something about it. And oftentimes they're taking some of the military capabilities and that they have obtained from the United States, as well as the skills that they have learned from the United States, whether that's through these extensive security cooperation programs or fighting alongside the United States in coalition wars um, or exercising with them in multilateral forums like, oh, I don't know, NATO. Um, taking these skills and becoming much more assertive and much more assertive in a way that is about their own interests rather than about perhaps what's good for the region or what you know is frankly in the united states interests so you know there was a uh, i think it's an unnamed dod official a few years ago said the problem with you know giving a partner military an independent military capability is that you give them an independent capability that they can use however they, they see fit. And we've seen the ways in which some of our partners in the region can do that, can use these capabilities in ways that complicate our own interests. And I think that's something that we've seen with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Yemen. This is something that we've seen continually with Turkey. We're seeing some of this emerge in the Eastern Mediterranean. You know, look at Libya. I mean, I can go on and on about all the places in which this is coming up. So ultimately, I think some of, you know, the uh, factors that we pointed to, are they really that big of a deal? I'll probably end up eating my hat in about a year or so, but I don't, I don't personally think so. But what I do think is most important is this undergirding trend of more assertive U.S. partners being willing to act in their own interests 
and you know, not really caring in a way that perhaps maybe they would have uh, in a few years ago about the ways in which it displeases the United States. Alon, did you have anything to add here? Uh, no, I mean, actually, I, I agree with Becca that I think, like, look, the UAE-Israel agreement, it's, and the Israel-Bahrain agreement, like, those are good things. I think the region needs more countries to normalize and talk to each other. And we talked before about the region not having enough of that and that being one of the challenges. Um, but they were doing a lot of talking to each other before. It was much more quiet. I think you'll have more maybe public economic cooperation. Those will be positive things. Um, you know, uh, I don't think it fundamentally like reshapes the Middle East in any kind of way. On the F-35 deal, I think the jury is still out on that. We'll see if that actually comes through. That requires a lot of consultation with Congress. I think the Israeli defense minister was on his way to Washington today to talk about QME um, with uh, Secretary Esper, um, which remains, I think, a big stumbling block. Um, and so, um, you know, but, but again, like the challenges facing the region militarily have a lot more to do with terrorism and low, like irregular warfare, even Iran, even if you consider Iran a major threat. I mean, Iran doesn't use a conventional warfare strategy. Like it's decided it's not going to really go toe to toe with the United States and Israel and conventional military weaponry um, because it'll lose. So instead it supports all these different proxies and players across the Middle East. And so like, what is the UAE going to do with all those F-35s? Why do they so desperately need the F-35? Like it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. In the same way, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that we spend all this time focusing on like the arms embargo being lifted on Iran. I mean, if Iran wants to spend all of its money building tanks, like go for it. That would actually be like a much better outcome for all of us and much easier for us to deal with and counter than sort of its support for proxies uh, across the Middle East. So, you know, this is, I think, goes back to something, Kaylee, we've written in this paper, but also have been making the point on for a long time. You know, uh, are these arms sales, most of them, really reflective of the challenges facing the region uh, and U.S. interests, or are they kind of just things we give to our friends because our friends decide they want them? And in many cases, our friends have a lot of money that they get from oil and they think this stuff is cool. The Emiratis, I should be fair to the Emiratis, like they use their weaponry well, so I don't think they're like, and are effective partners. Like, so they're not, you know, the ones I'm really thinking about when I think about these scenarios, but Egyptians, Saudis who can't maintain their planes, um, why are we selling them all this stuff? Richard, give you the opportunity to weigh in on anything in the said recently. Um, I guess the only thing I would say is I, I, I understand the fairly dismissive attitude toward the UAE and Bahrain normalization, um, given all the other impulses of the current administration things, but I actually think this is a fairly significant event. Will it reshape the entire Middle East? No, but that's, I mean, that's not the criteria I think we would apply to saying that something's a consequential and historic event, you know, if, if sort of accomplished by a different administration or something. And did it build on pre-existing trends and activities? Yeah, but so did Camp David and Oslo and Jordanian normalization. I mean, none, none of those were people yanked into a room apropos nothing and sort of forced to, to you know, cut a deal. Um, but it does tell us a few things. One, it tells us um, that, uh, you know, the big prize of Saudi Arabia may at some point be in the offing. Uh, it tells us that 
the Palestinian issue is not, which we, again, knew implicitly, but, but few would say publicly, the Palestinian issue is not a barrier uh, for a broader peace between Israel and, and, and its Arab neighbors, um, which, you know, there was still something of a taboo. It showed us that, you know, neither the inside out uh, approach to uh, establishing uh, a two-state solution um, with between Israel and the Palestinians was going to work, nor an outside-in solution, because this is the outside-in, except there's no in. Um, you know, the, 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 the in turned out to be normalization with Israel, not normalization pursuant to uh, a deal with the Palestinians and, and sort of the leverage that the that normalization with the outside, uh, with the Gulf countries would be able to produce on, on Israel. So none of those things work. So we I think we know a few things today that we didn't know for sure before. And as the, you know, two Arab states for the first time since 1994 to normalize ties with Israel, um, I think it's a big deal. And, uh, and it augurs potentially well for other good things to come. Well, let me make one point, I wanna go back on the, on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, partially because Richard, as we were talking about, we've, we're in the middle at CNAS of a pretty massive paper we'll be putting out over the next couple months like on that particular question um, and sort of what a different U.S. approach could look like. I think you're right that um, what the deal between the UAE and Israel and Bahrain and Israel shows is that, you know, the Arabs aren't going to be solu the solution for the Palestinian issue, but they've, they've given up caring about the Palestinians in that way for a long time, um, you know, um, and have basically since the start of the Arab Spring had like bigger issues to deal with. But at the same time, let's not also forget that the, one of the key conditions, maybe the most important condition of the UAE-Israel agreement was that Israel would put off annexation of any part of the West Bank for a number of years. So I think the lesson is both ways, both that the Arab issue won't, you know, Arab normalization won't be the solution to Israeli-Palestinian, you know, disagreements in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, but also that like, it still matters. And those who say it has no relevance at all, like it clearly did. It was a centerpiece of this discussion. Um, and so, you know, can you, I mean, one of the cases at least we make in our paper is, look, the country that really is invested in <clears throat> peace between Israel, the Arab state that's most invested in peace between Israel and the Palestinians in a two-state solution is Jordan. Jordan who has, you know, 2 million Palestinian citizens and, Basically, you know, for the last few years, we've kind of ignored the Jordanians, um, ignored them in the context of Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking and in the broader regional context. <clears throat> you know, I think relationships there, relationship between Israel and Jordan has really deteriorated. So, look, I think we should try to make progress with the Gulf. I think we should encourage Israeli Gulf relations and normalization. I think we should try to leverage what happens there to, to get positive steps on the Palestinian issue, but recognize it's not going to be like the Pansia, the Arab Peace Initiative, and some of these states have other interests. Um, but we should also, while we're interested in that, not ignore, you know, much more important player in Jordan and frankly, Egypt, um, who are the ones who actually border Israel and are the ones who care a lot more about the Palestinian issue and have their interests much more directly engaged. Well, with five minutes left until we conclude, um, I'll take us back out to a big lens and have to touch on what has already been raised multiple times, but a little bit more specifically, which is this lens of great power competition, 
talked about it thus far in the context of kind of the either or, so framing U.S. involvement in the Middle East as an alternative to a focus on great power competition. But this question has been on my mind and has also been raised in the chat, which is to what, you know, how should we think about U.S. involvement in the Middle East as the Middle East could be a potential, you know, battleground for competition with China and with Russia and already has been to a degree. So your thoughts on that and then any other concluding remarks you'd like to make. Becca, we can start with you. Sure. So I will just foot stomp what you had added on, which is the Middle East is already a battleground for this type of competition among, well, between the U.S., China and U.S., Russia, but also to a certain extent among all three. Um, so I think here, you know, you're seeing it play out in different ways. The Chinese approach to the region is very much focused on economics, whereas the Russian approach is pretty much opportunistic at best. So that ranges across uh, diplomacy, uh, you know, military activity as seen by its intervention in Syria, as well as economics uh, to a lesser extent. Um, so you see this playing out in a lot of different areas in a lot of different ways, but you also have to sort of map that against some of the U.S. priorities and U.S. interests. So where is it that, you know, China is perhaps going to uh, pose the greatest challenge to the United States in the future? It's the fact that China is positioning itself to have greater access in the Middle East. So here you see China making a ton of different deals, largely economic based for port development rights. But oftentimes these can almost be dual use in that you can develop a port for commercial usage, but you can also make sure that it's deep enough to be able to sail your ships in. And China has very much been focused on its power projection strategy, particularly in the Indian Ocean, being as how it has its first overseas base in Djibouti. Um, Russia has pretty much used the Middle East as almost a an experimental battleground to show off some of its equipment, uh, to try and get, you know, more countries in the Middle East to buy its military equipment to help its flailing economy. Um, you know, Russia has proven itself very uh, successful at, you know, trying to complicate U.S. strategy across the region. So whether this is doing military cooperation with longstanding U.S. partners like Egypt and Iraq in a way that, um, sort of reduces U.S. interoperability with these partners um, or just trying to, you know, completely throw whatever the United States is trying to do on its Syria policy out the, you know, out the window through the Astana group. Um, those are the types of ways in which we've already seen this competition playing out and it's going to continue to play out. So the United States needs to actually think about competition through this lens in the region, but it also has to realize, again, thinking, harking back to your paper, thinking about where its interests are and where these are the greatest. Because for the most part, you could see China and Russia doing a lot of different activities in the Middle East that are going, that's going to annoy Washington. But not all of these require uh, some type of concerted effort or the U.S. putting resources to try and counter these. You know, doing so would ultimately end up being a cost-imposing strategy. So the United States needs to understand where its interests and priorities are and then, you know, can sort of move to counter uh, Russia and China in this competition, but only in those specific areas 
or else it could just end up being a distraction from perhaps maybe a greater power play in Asia or Europe. Alon, you were nodding your head. Well, I was, I was agreeing with Becca very much on, you know, competition is happening and we have to decide where it matters and where it doesn't. Just because Russia or China are doing something in the Middle East doesn't mean we necessarily have to be in there like fighting them and competing with them for that. In some cases it does. I mean, one area that's kind of interesting that we've been spending some time at CNAS thinking about is, you know, technology competition with China is something that as an institution we're spending a lot of time on. And Israel is an, is an interesting case where you recently had <clears throat> some disagreements between the U.S. and Israel about <coughs> how the Chinese, you know, Chinese investment in, you know, the Israeli technology sector, you know, sort of startup nation. Um, and I think there, there's, an, there's a, probably a necessary effort by the United States and Israel to get on the same page, to align their interests, and to try to coordinate some strategies. Because you don't want to do is see, for example, Chinese investment in you know, Israeli technology firms being converted into Chinese military advantage or, or Chinese sort of strategic advantage um, when we're talking about a country that's such a close ally of ours. So I think like that's one example of an area where you've, you've seen this stuff um, playing out in, uh, in recent years, but as compared to the Russians where, yeah, I'm not sure we need to be, they're doing the, not just Syria, like Libya, they now seem to have a whole bunch of soften, um, you know, they've meddled a little bit in Yemen. Um, and we have to kind of choose, um, does that mean we have to get involved? Uh, in some cases, maybe yes, and come probably not. You know, like if they want to, if Vladimir Putin wants to waste some money and time and use it to burnish his credentials at home, you know, I don't know if we really need to like respond in that scenario, unless we could do it in a way that's cheaper for us and just makes his life more difficult if we decide we want to do that but only if you're doing that and not the opposite, which is oftentimes like the Russians intervene very cheaply and we come in much more expensively because of the way we fight. And then we're just imposing unnecessary costs on ourselves. Richard, final word to you. I would just say a word about China and the United States and the Middle East. I think there's going, the Middle East will be one more commons for US-China rivalry and competition well beyond the economic sphere. If you look at, um, I agree that China's first and foremost interests in the Middle East are largely economic, but even if that's only the case today, and I actually think that they're broader than economic today, although they're primarily economic, you know, that what great powers do is want to take actions to protect their investments, to protect the energy flows, uh, to protect their population that is living in those regions, um, particularly in regions that are politically unsettled, like the the Middle East, and you can go back, you can rewind the clock and look at, you know, the Brits convincing themselves that in order to protect India, to protect, Af you had to stop the Russians in Afghanistan, which, you know, they went all the way to, this, they had to stop the French in Egypt, right? You know, the Japanese started with a, with a railroad in Manchuria, and then it became to protect the investment there, they had to uh, have territory there, and then it became, they had to have Korea to protect the territory in Manchuria, and you, you know, you sort of go on and on, and, and this is kind of the, and, and guess why the United States has been at least partially involved in the Middle East. It goes back to the oil there and, and the and the need to, or at least the perceived need to provide some stability in regions so that that oil will continue to flow. So even if the, even if the ambition is economic, there's a whole geopolitical agenda that is going to follow from that, um, that may or may not coincide with that of the United States. I think, in fact, in some places it might, 
a general uh, interest in stability in other places will be diametrically opposed. The problem for the United States is that, um, you know, we are largely, we've largely been the security provider to the Middle East and, and China increasingly the economic beneficiary in the Middle East. Um, and uh, that's not a good place to be. So <laughs> this, you know, what Becca and what Alan are saying about, you know, discerning between the truly important and the not and developing asymmetric approaches to counter moves when we think actual uh, active competition is in order is um, is the key thing, rather than to look at every throne and uh, leader in the Middle East and see a, a Chinese hand behind it and that we need to immediately take, um, take measures to somehow oppose it. So. Okay, and with that, we are already a few minutes over time. I think we both answered questions and raised many others today, but thanks you to all who joined. Um, I really appreciated your, your audience questions, and I definitely think this is an area where CNAS will keep working and hopefully offering even more ideas and solutions in the future. So thank you all. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.